We inherited a world that had gone through centuries of colonialism and centuries of extraction and centuries of building up what we're now facing. And so it's not surprising to me that it will take some time to unwrite it or to write it differently. And even, you know, as I've aged, um, I've sort of started to feel like so much is cyclical and so much recurs and so much changes that I think that once you start to um, conceive of the world as not like a thing that you are changing for some designated end goal that you will reach, but rather this, you know, this journey that you're on with a changing world as you yourself are changing, as the world itself is changing, you can imagine everyone's lifetime is actually going to be taken up with service back to the world that they're born into. And it, it, it'll look very different for many generations from us, just as it looked different for the generations previous to us. But none of us is sort of getting out of this world, you know, without that being the requisite and without it being our lifetimes that we take. I'm Emily Russell. I'm a member of the 2020 Knight Hennessy cohort and a fourth year PhD student in political science. And I imagine a world without state violence. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast from Knight Hennessy Scholars. We are here to give you a glimpse into the Knight Hennessy Scholar community of graduate students spanning all seven Stanford schools, including business, education, engineering, humanities, law, medicine, and sustainability. In each episode, we talk with scholars about the world they imagine and what they are doing to bring it to life. Today, we're speaking with Emily Russell, a PhD candidate in political science. During our conversation, you'll hear Emily's experience growing up in a large family, tapping into the worlds of theatrical performance and political science, how she uses both to understand state violence, her sweet tooth, and so much more. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Imagine the World. I am your co-host, Willie Thompson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Taylor Goss. And wow, we've got a special guest today in Emily Russell. we also got Taekwondo on the line, but, you know, she's just observing, so just want to give a shout out to her. Emily, how are you doing today? How's your life? What's going on? It's good. Like, we were chatting about the quarter is over, so I'm at the phase in the PhD where the quarter sort of is always over and never over because I'm post classes. So yes, we're looking ahead for break and it's, it's still a sunny, nice day here in California. So all is well. Sounds great. And we were talking about plans. You going to Seattle for a bit of the break and then you're coming back. Yep. Going to Seattle for a bit and then I'll be back. My big goal for break is to launch my microgreens garden. I don't know if y'all have ever eaten these, but they're like the baby sprouts of your favorite vegetables, so they grow way quicker than any vegetable that you can grow. But then, you know, they serve the place in your salads and your soups and all that. So I'm very hopeful that I can grow them in the winter because I don't think they'll take long. TikTok has led me to believe that it'll be fairly straightforward. So I'll report back. Wait, so what greens are in the microgreens? And oh, you can do any, but okay, I'm going to do sunflowers and broccoli. Broccoli is a good call. That wouldn't have come to mind for me. That's more substantial than I thought the greens you were growing. Right. I think it is still as substantial as you're imagining, which is like they're basically like their stems grow. The stem of the blossoming broccoli plant will grow. And then that little sprout you can harvest. And so you can plant like all the seeds really close. You don't have to space the plants. So you can just have a big tray of all these sprouts and 
yeah, it is as minimal as you imagine. <laughs> was this purely TikTok inspired or was there some like Facebook game, farmer game that you were playing that made you want to do this? You know, that's an inspiring question. Microgreens are just great. They're all over our farmer's market. If you go to the Cala farmer's market, if you go anywhere, they sell them. I think I'm inspired because I have a patio right now, not like a yard or anything. And so I'm trying to think of what can be grown in containers on that patio. And this seems like it won't need so many roots or so much space. So it's promising for that reason. And no sort of digital farm game inspired me, but maybe the laziness of not wanting to walk to the farmer's market has inspired me. As good a reason as any. <laughs> Although I will say the Calais Farmer's Market is a really nice place to go. Yeah, it is actually kind of a treat if you make it down there. It's very I don't true. know if y'all are coffee people, but there's a place called Zombie Runner on that mm. block and it's pretty tasty. I thought you were going to say Backyard Brew. That's my that's my haunt. That is a few steps away. And just to be clear, on um, this is the last question I asked about the microgardens and then the microgreens that we can get into the 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 meat of the <laughs> of the discussion to use the turn of phrase. So you're going to eat the broccoli but you will not eat the sunflowers. Is that right? No, this is such a great clarification. You eat the stems, like the the sprouts of both. So you eat the sunflower, like just as you would grow a sunflower, you stop it after two inches of sprouting and you eat those sprouts. It all seemed like bean sprouts before. Microgreens are like the same size. So you never actually get like a broccoli. You just get a broccoli sprout. So maybe instead of microgreens, we should be calling them sprouts. But <laughs> yes, I will be eating both. Sunflower will be consumed. Oh, fun fact. I used to be allergic to sunflower seeds as a child. And fortunately, I outgrew it. Through sheer force of will? <laughs> I don't know. I think your taste buds change over time. I don't know if that's how allergies work. but Yeah, me either. But uh, I'm glad you can now eat sunflower. So you said sunflower seeds or sunflower, period? I think both. I mean, both appear to be safe to me now. Appear to be safe. That's funny. I can't wait to taste one of these. You know, you gotta bring some of this to Denny, some of these sprouts <laughs> yeah. to Denny, so we can uh, we can veg out. But we're really excited to have you on today for this episode. Obviously, just because of who you are, but especially because of what you study. And we've already heard that amazing imaginal world statement you've given at the beginning of the episode. But before we talk about the world you imagine, let's talk about the world you were born into and have experienced thus far. So, where are you from, and what was your journey here? <laughs> yeah, I was born in a exurb, which is like a rural place, even beyond the suburbs, just north of Detroit. That place is its interesting. If you know where Detroit is, there's like a, a bridge and a tunnel that lead to Canada. And so you can see Canada from the sort of shoreline in Detroit. And I'm from the next bridge up. That's how I describe it. So the next bridge that you hit that takes you to Canada, that's where I grew up. You know, you can see Canada from from my hometown. It's like right across this seemingly passable river. It's 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 a short distance away. But I'm on the on the Michigan side of of that. And yeah, I grew up in a family with a ton of cousins. So my mom has eight siblings. She's one of eight. And so all of those aunts and uncles live super close by. I grew up with a big community of, of cousins as part of my immediate family. I stayed in Michigan for undergrad. I went a couple hours away um, to University of Michigan. Go Blue. Yeah, Go Blue. That was a great experience. And yeah, I loved going to college there and I wouldn't trade it. And in fact, just before this, we were chatting about Stanford being sort of empty on the holidays. But 
in truth, Stanford's always a little empty compared to the big public school I'm used to being in, where there's 40,000 students running around, not sort of 4,000. And so, yeah, it was actually a really dense, sort of fun college place to be. So I officially majored in environmental science and political science, but I was always sneaking around the theater school and circling the playwriting program as well. But yeah, my first love academically was the environment. And it wasn't until halfway sort of through that degree that I was finding myself much more called to some of the social and political organizing that was um, happening around the environment than I was to sort of the natural science. At the time that I started college, I feel like there was the science of climate change and things like that were so obvious. And so many scientists had already told us everything we needed to know. And so back then I thought it's, you know, a social and political systems issue. And so anyway, I got really tuned into studying political science instead. I still did both, but more interested in the social side of that. Was organizing or activism connected with the arts in your household growing up? Was that something that you discovered early on? How were your passions fostered as a child? I don't think I thought of myself as much of an activist, but like at all, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that. But I will say like growing up in like a really big family, you do learn a lot about community that then becomes very second nature. So I would never classify it as sort of activism, but, you know, watching tons of people rush in for each other all the time. So in the case of any event, any celebratory or mournful event, having a bunch of people like rush in with food and care and, and be on your side and, and give you, you know, material and spiritual support through all of those things, I think is not activism as such, but it is, it did teach me a lot about how like, you know, I wanted to show up for others and show up in my community. And I think that that was separate from the arts for me in some ways growing up because in the arts, I really got my start in like the theater because I wanted to hang out with my sister and she auditioned for a play. And I don't know, I was young and I didn't think that I was interested in that. I was eight, to be clear. I was like actually properly young. And my sister was 10. Oh, a prodigy. Well, my sister got a role in this local play and I went to every single rehearsal and watched her and memorized the entire script because I practiced her lines with her. And this went on for months. And then the week of the show, a main character had to drop out. And the person who had been playing this main character was like 16. And I went to the director and I was like, you know what? I know the role, so I'll do it. <laughs> and so as an eight-year-old, I got cast in some small community theater play that I stepped into at sort of the last second. And uh, it was really fun. And so ever since then, I don't know, my sister and I performed together and, and did all these plays together after that. And so I think those things were sort of separate in my mind, but as like practices, but, you know, all based in who's around and how to spend time with the people that you love. Sure. Whenever you said you were, you know, kind of skulking around Mich around University of Michigan, like doing theater on the side, I'm imagining you like, you know, sneaking away from your political classes to go like, you know, do plays in a basement. What, was, what did it actually look like? How did those two things intersect or not in undergrad? Honestly, kind of like that. In the way that University of Michigan set up, like the main sort of campus for all these programs, political science and all of this, all the liberal arts degrees are 
on what's called like the main campus. And then you have to take a bus to get to the theater school. So it was literally like I, I got on a bus and I went north and entered a theater and I was a slightly different person, did a slightly different thing, tapped into a different side of my brain and came back to sort of not reality, but came back to sort of the world of facts um, shortly thereafter. But I actually really started to appreciate that separation. It was really... Um, I've talked about this before as sort of like crop rotating. You can only grow one crop on the plot of land at a time, and then you grow a different crop the next you know, season, but in the same plot, so that you're always sort of getting fruits, but they're of a different type. And this is how I felt with political science and playwriting was that, okay, sometimes I'm in the world of facts, and sometimes I'm in the world of measurement and dealing with these patterns that give us some solace and understanding. And then sometimes I'm up in the world of stories and feelings, which give us some reason to care about the facts at all. That's so beautiful. I love the crop rotation analogy. That's sort of that's that's great for me. I of course I study music technology and, and public policy, and I too like often experience those worlds as pretty pretty separate, at least academically. But there's always something about your cognition and your analysis of those two worlds that somehow help each other, or just the way that you look at the world or that you analyze it. I'm going to carry the crop rotation analogy with me. That's great. As well, uh, it's a really good metaphor. And I also like the focus on an interdisciplinary education. So when it comes to your imagined world statement, maybe as a transition, because it feels like the work you do as a playwright also is embodied in your imagined world statement, but in a very subtle way. The first question I want to ask is, what brought you into the topic of state violence? I feel as if that is something... Everyone who has a PhD, they have a reason for why they're doing it. It's a PhD is a decision. You don't flirt with that. That's a commitment. And so when it comes to state violence, I'm wondering what brought you into that field, especially considering the times we're in now where, I mean, according to the Council on U.S. Foreign, on American Formulations, there are like 26 conflicts happening right now and even getting point around the world, from Israel, Palestine, to South Sudan, to the Congo, to places in the Americas. So what brings you to state violence as a topic of research? I mean, really the candid answer and the personal answer is that I grew up in a working class family. And around the time of the recession, a lot of people were facing layoffs and other forms of precarity. And so people in my family took up jobs that would allow them to you know, keep their health care and things like that. And what that meant for members of my family who didn't have a college education was that some of them ended up taking jobs in the local prison. And that change really, really impacted them. And, you know, impacted me by way of bearing witness to that and to those changes. All those conflicts that you mentioned, and we'll get into the details, I'm sure, about all of this, but I'm really called to this work now because I think there's truly nothing more important than justice for those who are impacted and victimized. But the truth is that I came to know just how violent and just how unjust that system was, because I was really proximate to the harm that it created for those even who have to, you know, carry it out and maintain it. You know, that whole process of bearing witness to economic changes and then the way that people in those economic conditions take up these types of roles and are asked to take up these types of roles on behalf of their states. And, you know, the people who take them up are often very different from the people who are victimized and, and sometimes not. Sometimes there's deep overlap and deep turnover between these communities. But I really got aware of state violence in that sort of proximity. It's interesting that you reference to all of these conflicts, which we'll talk about and, and are happening right now. And it is like truly 
a really solemn thing to discuss and, and to study. But, you know, there's a way to where the violence that I study, because it is violence by governments, it's actually very normalized. It only sort of comes to our big attention when there's a reaction to it, when there's a fight back, you might say. And so in a lot of ways, this is sort of the violence that sustains so much of the world, so much normalcy is built into these systems of violence, specifically incarceration and policing, not only in this country, but in many of these other places. And so it was realizing how every day that violence was. I mean, you say, you, you know, in a PhD, you have to think about something every day. And in some ways, I was thinking about this type of thing every day because of that proximity. And so, yeah, I think there's a way that we think of these instances of violence or conflict as being so random or so coming out of nowhere, when actually the status quo is a pretty violent one. Yeah, absolutely. Oops, woke up my daughter. Uh, it's something that when I think about the prevalence of conflict in the world that we live in, and to what degree we sort of accept violence as a means to an end, to me, I can only imagine how emotionally exhausting that can be and it reminds me of a, of a Langston Hughes poem called Tired, where he basically references this idea that this idea of like cutting the world open, like to see what is keeping it from being good and to find out what worms are like eating at the rind. I'm not saying as poetically as he did, but it's basically, it's a really good poem. It's very short. And that makes me wonder two things. In your experience, what types of things fester and create the conditions for state sanctioned conflict and violence? Sort of like, what are the conditions that create these worms, to use this Langston Hughes metaphor, um, that are eating at the rind of maybe our humanity? I'm going to try to embody poeticism there. And then how do you maintain a sense of self and optimism about what it takes to to get to the either the other end of conflict or to reimagine what a world with less violence or maybe, you know, if we're really going to imagine a world like with with no violence would look like? I love that poem, and I'm grateful that you brought it, and I appreciate you bringing it into the conversation. In in terms of how we think about where this violence comes from, so the state is said to have a monopoly on violence. So we're supposed to sort of accept that the state is the one that can commit as much you know violence as it chooses and as it needs to sort of maintain itself. And we think of democracies as sort of maybe better able to limit that in some ways, but of course, many of the world's largest democracies we know are responsible for a huge proportion of that violence that gets committed. So, for example, 40% of the world's total incarcerated population is incarcerated in just three democracies. And so it is a really big issue, not only for us here, but also around the world. And our ability to understand where this violence comes from, and even to just notice it, requires us to call into question the esteem that we hold democracies in, particularly when it comes to this. And if we do want to hold them in this esteem, then to use the powers that democracies give us for accountability for those violences, which have become so commonplace and so everyday in so many people's lives in those places. But, you know, another thing is that we know that governments, like in the history of all conflict, governments are actually the biggest perpetrator of all of all human rights. Um, so if you look at who has committed the most human rights abuses in the history of conflict, it's governments. And so even though they have this, you know, sort of, they're supposed to have this sort of monopoly on that violence, I think as we're entering an era where that seems to be overused or, or is at least coming more to our attention, we're sort of questioning that as a basis for justice. 
in terms of where it's coming from, I say all that only to say that, you know, in my dissertation and in a lot of my work, I theorize that there are actually economic determinants of the use of this violence. In the same decade of literature where we're understanding that the state is going to have this monopoly on violence, they're also talking about the way that states are built and the sizes and shapes and densities that states, you know, come to take up based on two things. And one is coercion and one is capital. In my dissertation and in a lot of my work, I'm looking at, well, what are these capital incentives that are generating this excess coercion? How are we getting such normalized high levels of state violence and coercion? And what capital processes is that linked to? In particular, I'm looking at how resources are extracted either from people through labor or natural resources. So, you know, you mentioned the Congo, and that's sort of a good example right now of extracting of a mineral and extracting of a resource that is going to be sold. And so in order to get that resource, well, the state is going to do sort of whatever it has to do to extract that. And that extraction, which will, you know, bring them capital, which will bring them money, they'll employ as much coercion as needed to sort of get that capital out. In the same vein, a lot of people, of course, work in those mines. And so there's also this element of labor and labor extraction that's happening. And when you look at even the histories of some of the world's large democracies today, you know, including the U.S., we are a post-colonial country. You know, technically, we came from colonialism. We emerged from a system of extraction that is based on the taking of land, the taking of labor, and the use of land and labor resources to build up a country. And so I look at those things. I look at the history of development and the ongoing patterns of extraction to understand how coercion is being used in governments and countries today. And then to that point of inspiration and hope, right? Because I just listed only 26 conflicts according to the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm pretty sure there are more depending on yeah. your perspective and every continent has its own set of conflicts. So what are some of the things that would give you optimism and hope about a future where there is less state-sanctioned violence? And I'll leave it there. In terms of optimism, my undergrad advisor always used to say, you know, there's no such thing as too much reading for freedom, which I think is a bell hooks type thought. Um, like and I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that um, in my daily life, I feel, if not slightly, I know I'm not in control of these systems, but I do feel slightly like we can keep an edge by knowing at least what's going on. And there is something to like awareness and being able to link these phenomena that it does give me some optimism that oh, we might find a root cause of these things. Oh, we might get to the bottom of this someday. And I think that being able to do intellectual work and and even intellectual work derived from experience and, and all of that to come to those understandings, I think, gives me some optimism. But I would say, like, what gives me energy around that optimism is being in community with people who are working in diverse ways to solve this. So I'm very inspired by a lot of people I work with in San Francisco and the broader Bay Area in sort of, you know, collectives and bookstores. And I work in prisons. And I think working in all of these different community spaces close to people who either have experienced state violence or, you know, are oriented toward getting to the end of it as well, I think is, is, a, is a reassuring place to be in. And when you talk about community, and even you even reference the notion of the notion of reading for peace and spreading awareness, and that to me sounds like storytelling to some degree. I know that there was an initiative that you were a part of called Playwriting for Peace. And I wondered if we could delve into that a little bit. Where were you in your career at the time 
that uh, you took part in playwriting for peace? Where was it? What was the goal? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was a really beautiful time. So in my undergrad, myself and another playwright from Michigan, we were really interested in bringing tools of storytelling and tools of playwriting to other communities and and doing that writing and doing that creating in community. And so we founded a program. We got a, a grant to go to Kosovo for a summer and basically work um, at this border, which was, you know, somewhat contested and somewhat separated after the conflict. And I say somewhat, but I mean, pretty separate. There's like a bridge that crosses between this these two halves of this town and the Italian military it like guards that bridge. And so we basically brought communities um, together in writing workshops in that area and did it for a whole summer. And we had these like amazing places that we ended up doing these workshops in. There was an old warehouse and then there was this like beautiful greenhouse inspired building that had been um, built. And then we performed. So we brought these students, high school age students largely together. And we did playwriting workshops all summer and did them in a variety of ways and, you know, went to libraries and art museums and all around and learned so much about Pristina, the city from all the students there and really just gave some background into some writing that writing processes that we used and that type of thing. And in the end, every student had written a short play and we had them performed in this amazing place called Kino Armada, which is stage and a theater. It was formerly military barracks. So it used to be like this really like kind of cornerstone place where the war had been, you know, at least fueled. And now it's like this amazing, beautiful theater. And so we performed the pieces there. We were actually the first, um, our students were the first um, to perform and to have theatrical work on that stage. So they had played movies there before and some music, but this was the first theater that had been done, been done on that stage. And so it was really, really special. And it was a beautiful experience. That's amazing. Whenever you and your collaborators first conceived of the project why playwriting why theater as a vehicle for for this barrier crossing you know there's sort of that like trope of like the lonely writer is <laughs> you sitting alone uh, yeah. doing their thing and i think the exact recording opposite a record in a cavern somewhere yeah right right the exact opposite thing is required of theater right because you actually can't I mean, you could, surely you could write a play by yourself, but you can't perform it <laughs> often by yourself. Um, surely there are one woman, one person shows, but theater really requires community to be put on. I mean, in sort of the traditional way, you have lights, you have sound, you have an audience, you have a bunch of people going off each other's energies to tell these stories. And so I think both me and my collaborators' lives had been really transformed um, growing up by the process of theater and the way that we experienced that as community building and world building for us. And so it's another thing altogether to have someone reading your own words and enacting your own stories, you know, with you or in front of you and for your community. And so, yeah, I think that I, I also stand by the fact that theater is very community driven and requires a collective to sort of be put on. And so it allows for a lot of those connections in, in real time and in a sort of ephemeral space of a, a stage, which, doesn't repeat itself. It's not filmed. It's not recorded. It's, you know, it happens once and whatever you create together is there and then it leaves with you in some ways. And so that is a community form of writing and creating, I think, that we had both been um, changed by. Speaking of that stage, the image of the military barracks becoming a stage for theater is a, is a really striking one. And I'm 
curious about whenever the students' plays were performed on that stage, what sorts of stories did they tell and what did it feel like as an audience member watching them tell those stories? They were really diverse and they ranged from sort of serious things like incidents of domestic violence or other sort of personal tragedies, um, harassment and things like that, like these sort of very poignant identifications of something problematic in society and in their lives to things that are very humorous and even satirized forms of those, you know, sort of traumatic things. So there was someone who did like the four, the four, like, I don't, the horsemen or something. I don't really know what this allegory is. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So there's like, you know, so they did like the four things that were like, but then those characters, this is the one that's like standing out to me in memory right now, were so funny. So like the way that like the war character would joke around with the disease character, you know, these like was so humorous. So the tone changed, of course, through every play. And that was something also beautiful that every playwright's work was featured in the same night. So you sort of had that, You went in a lot of worlds in one world, but we were also really moved by the transformation. I think, and back to Willie's point about hope, I think seeing parts of the world that have formerly contained something that we think of as violent or oppressive being transformed into something that is creative and actually having like physical evidence of your, you know, the embodied experience of being in that place where a transformation has occurred is really special. Another example of that, just briefly, I was recently at a conference in London and there's a an art gallery called the Serpentine Gallery and that apparently it was a weapons storage house. And now it's like this beautiful, really transformative gallery in the middle of a giant park in the middle of London. And so I think that there are sort of examples of this in the world that maybe are more common than we think. And I don't know, going to those spaces is also a source of like, oh, we can do this. Oh, things do change. And here's the evidence. Yeah, for sure. To me, what it sounds like you're doing in your work as an academic, your work as a playwright, and I swear folks listening, we do not plan to have three (laughs) people who do something arts related back to back to back, but it just goes to show how multifaceted the community is. It really embodies this notion of to me the academics is like the head you're thinking a lot about the stuff you're really grappling with these tensions these topics then there's the, like the heart part you're sort of doing this work in community with people to create something out of some of the darkest places of their own experience and then you, you're sort of doing like hands and feet it's like a full body experience we're sort of like by acting out these plays people are not just engaging you intellectually, engaging with you emotionally, also sort of prompting some sort of response from the audience. We've talked a lot about the ways that art and playwriting in particular can be really inspiring in the service of analysis or emotion or some level of personal grappling with state violence. But I'm wondering, as you're thinking about art and its role in political expression has evolved over time, are there ways in which art is not suited for retribution? or regenerative justice? And how do you think about art now as a driver of social change? This question touches on some really important things. And one of them is that while community building is really possible and healing is really possible, and there are tons of experts on on this who do use arts in these transformative ways and sometimes even in service of things like transformative justice, I'm of the position and I, I tend to believe that communities impacted by this violence, what is what is really important for those communities is material justice. And sometimes 
I'm concerned really with with a justice at a very deep level. And we would have to guarantee people safety and security and, and reparations for harm that is done in a really deep way before we ask communities to sort of move towards this transitional phase of, of coexistence and flourishing and what we might imagine in like this sort of utopic, peaceful horizon. I think that blurs a lot of what's necessary in the interim, which is really true material rewriting and, and, and justice granting for affected communities, which often may not be achieved in sort of just get together and, and forgive the fact that oppression has occurred. There's a really important, I guess, path on the way to that vision of coexistence, which requires special and, and material attention to whatever oppression has occurred among the people who have responded. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it, and it, I mean, it basically gets at this notion that to do any of this work takes time and there's no like five to 10 year plan to reach true like reconciliation. I think like, and there's value in the attempt, right? I mean, what South Africa did with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like there have been efforts to try to do this. And what I hear in your in your articulation is that the kind of change it takes to do it well and do it right probably extends beyond like our lifetimes, if we're being honest. And I think that's something that's really hard to hold on to and believe in and to commit oneself to just given sort of like the world that we live in. So that makes a ton of sense. I think that's true. I think the one thing that is maybe not optimism granting about that, but the one like thing that that makes me think of is that, yes, like these solutions will extend beyond our lifetime, but also that their causes came way before us, right? So like yeah. we inherited this world with all of this inequality. We inherited a world that had gone through, you know, centuries of colonialism and centuries of extraction and centuries of building up what we're now facing. It's not surprising to me that it will take some time to unwrite it or to write it differently. And even, I don't know, as I've aged, <laughs> um, I've sort of started to feel like so much is cyclical and so much recurs and so much changes that I think that once you start to um, conceive of the world as not like a thing that you are changing for some designated end goal that you will reach, but rather this journey that you're on with a changing world as you yourself are changing, as the world itself is changing, you know, you can imagine everyone's lifetime is actually going to be taken up with service back to the world that they're born into. And it, it, it'll look very different for many generations from us, just as it looked different for the generations previous to us. But none of us is sort of getting out of this world, you know, without that being the requisite and without it being our lifetimes that we take. Yeah, girl, you spitting. I ain't even gonna hold you. <laughs> that was a fire. Yeah, I don't have anything else to follow up on that. I think that's, there's nothing else to follow up on that. I think that was beautifully said. And it really makes you think differently about like this idea of inheritance, right? I think sometimes we think of inheritance as like, it's a thing of privilege as opposed to a thing of obligation, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I really, I really like the way you, you describe that. Real quick, before we get into some of the more like Knight Hennessy sort of improbable facts part of the discussion, I don't want to like talk, have the whole conversation about you being a PhD student. We now even talk about like your actual dissertation. So. Yeah. So in my dissertation, I am uh, working on you know, some of these issues with India, the other, you know, large democracy in the world, where I'm studying, you know, the colonial creation of certain forms of extraction, including labor and land resources. And I'm looking at how those, you know, modes of extraction have affected coercion and other things. And so this summer, I spent time in Northeast India with folks on tea plantations who are engaged in sort of 
generations-long laboring conditions, which are, are really difficult, and they have a really unique relationship to the state and to other communities in their area. A lot of my dissertation will take place with those communities in mind and, and with those communities at the forefront of understanding how these systems of labor, specifically over these many generations um, since colonialism, has affected state relationship and coercion and all of those things that we've been talking about. That's so fascinating. I am looking forward to maybe one day being able to to read that dissertation. Although I don't, I don't know how much prerequisite conversation we'll have to have for me to for me to understand it. But it sounds, but it sounds, it's it sounds like really important work and and something that connects a lot of dots for the work you've described up to this point in your life. So thank you for sharing that with us. As we are sort of discussing connecting the dots, let's turn a little bit more toward toward your experience since becoming a part of Night Hennessy. How has being a part of Night Hennessy affected you as a person and, and as a student at Stanford? Yeah, so we were talking a little earlier about the fact that I came, you know, straight from undergrad during COVID. And so what had happened was that I interviewed for Night Hennessy two weeks before the world shut down for COVID, um, that February before I came. And so I had met my whole cohort um, in person at these interviews. Um, and then, you know, they were the last new people I met for for literally years. And so when we got to campus later that year and things were still really confusing and you know, separated and quarantined and, and, and lonely, we actually all knew each other and we all had each other's contacts and all of this. And so it ended up being like a real lifeline at the beginning of what turned out to be a really big move for the PhD to have so many people around who were, you know, going through the the, the identical experience, but also who had some shared affinity with you in some way and, and who you had met before. And so it was sort of this relief to see a familiar face, you know, across the country after a lot of solo journeying. <laughs> The first few years, Night Hennessy was really amazing just for giving just a beautiful community to work from and to be with. And I think another thing, like academically, beyond just sort of the the world, the social world that it put us in, the, the family it created, is that everyone in Night Hennessy is very inspired to do many things and moves in that direction always. And so you always sort of, you know, your peers become a really good litmus test for how much are you working on those same missions and are you in alignment and are you moving toward those goals? And so I think being able to be sort of co-inspired by everyone around you is, is a really lucky thing. And even just grounding you as you're on this like really transformative journey into like what your goals should be and, and how your mission should be aligned in the world and all of that. So I think those ways Night Hennessy was super, super impactful. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a friend about how incredible it is to to know the folks in Night Hennessy so deeply on a personal and social level, but also get to sit next to them on a bus and have a conversation that I would gladly listen to in a Q&A or a masterclass. Like my friends are people that I deeply respect for their work and get to just have casual conversations about things that I would, you know, pay a ticket to go see. It's a, it, yeah, it's a really beautiful community for those, for those reasons that you described. Totally. And then there's sort of the basic um, answer, which is also that, you know, Night Hennessy does give you funding. And in some ways that funding is a security blanket to be a little more bold. So you sort of don't have to take on all of the risks that the people around you might have to take on in terms of 
getting a topic identified for your PhD immediately and going the path of least resistance to, toward a job and toward, you know, those types of things. At least in my experience, I feel like knowing that I had Night Hennessy and knowing that I had a little extra room to play meant that I could take my time a little as well as be a little risky, be a little bold with what I was trying to work on and, and, and trying to find out about the world. Yeah, we find ourselves in this sort of interdisciplinary cohort where not only the interdisciplinary notion exists, but also we're, we're given the opportunity to really follow that path because of the financial security as well. It's a beautiful and, and awe-inspiring privilege to move, through, to move through this world with. Yeah, I think you've described it really beautifully. Thinking back a little bit further to your Night Hennessy application, that was before even the interview that you mentioned pre-COVID. Something that everyone who applies to Night Hennessy does is write eight improbable facts, which are things that someone might not expect would be true about you. For me, this was something that took a lot of time, maybe the most time out of anything on the application. Would you be willing to share one or two of your improbable facts with us? Yeah, I can share one. I'm going to share a silly one to change the, you know, to, to keep the levity in, in our chat. Something we didn't talk about in this conversation, but something that I did do before I came here was that I had spent a summer living in Iceland. And my fun fact is that my improbable fact is that I can speak Swedish. And the reason that this is so valuable to me, I learned Swedish because I was going to be in Scandinavia and I wanted to know language. The reason it's valuable to me, what I came to know is that every Scandinavian culture is really candy obsessed, including Sweden, including Iceland. I too am candy obsessed. And so the most important thing to me that I learned in the process of studying Swedish was all the different ways to say candy, to refer to different types, including the fact that there's, you know, bulk candy and confectionery stores and all of these different places that you can go to get your little daily gummies. That was a really big perk of learning Swedish to me. <laughs> so wait, so you got to give us the ways to say these sweets in Swedish in case. In case you ever find yourself there. Okay, so in Sweden, the term is leskodis. Leskodis. Yes, and it refers to the you know the little candies that you pick up and put in your little put in your little bag, you know like one by one, one of each you know sort of thing. And the equivalent of that in Iceland is blandipoka, and that means a little bit of everything. Blandipoka. Okay. Exactly. Blondie yes. Polka. You're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a favorite sweet in Iceland? Well, the thing about Blondipoka and this candy, these candy stores is that you, you know, you get a big, you just get a bag and you fill it with one of every little candy. I don't have too much favoritism, but there's a big like fried egg gummy and that's kind of yummy. <laughs> a fried egg gummy? Like, yes. like gummy in the shape of a fried egg, but exactly. not like a fried, okay. All right. Just, I just. Oh yeah. No, it tastes like peach or something really pleasant. Okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause I would have, I don't know if I, I don't know if I ever had a savory gummy. I think that's a, that's a bit of an oxymoron. It's a bit beyond me as well. Oh, sounds like an everlasting gobstopper. Um, but one last thing on this on this candy thing, because it sounds like you have a sweet tooth. Is that correct? Do you have a sweet tooth? Oh, yeah. Okay. Give me your top five candies. Ooh, okay. Nerds Clusters. Ooh, you all have okay. those? Is that five or one? Are we going in descending or ascending order? Ooh, that was actually number one. So I'll descend. See, you know, whatever first comes to mind is, yeah, is yeah. supreme. So yes, um, Nerds Clusters, Swedish Fish, Sour Patch Kids. But the thing about these, so I like all of these nearly equivalently. I'll finish with like, you know, twin snakes maybe and Haribo cherries. But about all of these, I prefer the red gummies in each of these candies. So nearly any candy can be in my top five if it has that, you know, that really, sh that either like really sweet feeling or that really sour feeling. 
but I'm going to have a little preference for the red ones, which I don't know if I'm just like tricking myself, but they taste, I don't know, they, they got that strawberry cherry flavor, which I'm drawn to. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard someone put Swedish fish in their top five. Like Wanda, is, I don't know if you have a sweet tooth. Is it, is it in your top five? Is our Swedish fish? Um, I actually have a more of a like sour sweet tooth. So I feel like the, the I'm just trying to clarify the sweetest fish are I was like literally trying to Google half of the things you guys were talking about. <laughs> they're like red. They're like, you know, red, kind red of sweet. And... Texture is, is not like Haribo gummy bear. It's more like you can get more smoothly, right? It's tough, like a piece of jerk. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Your bicuspids are doing double time to, <laughs> doing to, some to, get, to get through that. Well, okay. So actually, let me just check my potential bias on the Swedish fish piece. Now, do Swedish fish taste the same in Sweden or do they exist in Sweden or is Swedish fish just an American appropriation, which, you know, is, is part of the course when it comes to American culture. But I just want to make, cause I could be missing something like, you know, maybe I go to Sweden and they're fish and they're gummies. And You're not missing okay. anything. Right, well, yeah. We, we, we just, okay. We just have different top fives, but I appreciate you engaging in that exercise. And now we know what to get you. Uh, when you defend, we'll just get you a, a basket full of sweets. So true. <laughs> Well, cool. Before we leave, the last question of the day is people who are listening to this podcast who are interested in joining this Night Hennessy experience, this community, what advice would you give them about applying, about being part of this community and, and seeking to be one of the members of this special experience? I would say, and sorry if this has been said, I feel like we all probably say the same things on on these on these questions. I would say that when I came into my cohort, felt a really deep sense of belonging. And I felt that, I think, because everyone was very genuine stewards of the causes in the world that they were called to. And there's something about that that made people really compassionate listeners and friends and, and everything that came with it. And so I think my advice is sort of to do what you were going to do. Do what you were going to do anyway. And maybe just follow that energy where it takes you. And if Night Hennessy becomes part of the journey for doing what you were already going to do in the world, then that's a beautiful thing. And also that the genuine sort of pursuit of that thing is how you should be on your application. So however you're going to apply, you're going to talk about what you did in the world. And there's nothing you could manufacture on that journey that would be better than just doing the things in the world that you want to see exist in the world. So yeah, my advice is keep going on whatever journey you're on toward whatever thing matters to you. And the genuineness of that pursuit will speak for itself on your application. I know you prefaced your response by saying that you're pretty sure people respond the same <laughs> way. I actually will push back on that and say that everyone actually gives the sentiment might be similar, but the way in which everyone describes is very authentic and genuine and unique, I would say. So yeah. I would say, and I think that's just reflective of the deep work that we all have to do to say, like, why are we going to Stanford? Why are we applying to Night Hennessy? Because even yeah. on the other end of all the benefits, you really have to sort of have a, a very good idea of what you want to do and why you want to be here. And we just found out that Taekwondo is potentially Team Swedish Fish, which we'll just have to get into this after the podcast <laughs> is over because that's 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 alarming. <laughs> but, but Emily, we appreciate you so much. Thank you for spending some time with us and for sharing your your life story, your work thus far, and just for, for being here and representing a cadre of folks who are doing a lot of tough 
really difficult work and and still finding joy and levity and and community in the face of that. So just want to say thank you so much and really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Imagine a World, where we hear from inspiring members of the KHS community who are making significant contributions in their respective fields, challenging the status quo, and pushing the boundaries of what is possible as they imagine the world they want to see. This podcast is sponsored by Knight Tennessee Scholars at Stanford University, a multidisciplinary, multicultural graduate fellowship program providing scholars with financial support to pursue graduate studies at Stanford while helping equip them to be visionary, courageous, and collaborative leaders who address complex challenges facing the world. Follow us on social media at Knight Hennessy and visit our website at kh.stanford.edu to learn more about the program and our community.